So, Matt, I have a question for you. What's up, man? Have you ever, like, ordered a meat box from somewhere and not had a place to store all the meat? So, we're changing roles and you're asking me esoteric questions now. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. We're changing up the dynamic. Uh, I did have this service for a while, every plate. It wasn't just meat, but yeah. So, does like freezer space or fridge space ever become an issue with that? Uh, I tried to be conscious of that. Uh, I ended up throwing away most of the produce that came with it, but the meat I was pretty good about, because even if I don't use the shit they send with me, you know, I can do something with this chicken breast. Well, see, that's interesting, because that brings us up to our uh, our sponsor for the episode, Freeze- oh, for fuck's sakes. <laughs> Freezers R Us. This is a company where if you want to get a meat box, you can have it sent to them, and they'll f- keep it on ice for you, and then whenever you want it, they'll just mail it to you. So a climate-controlled storage locker. Yeah. For your meat box. So this has been another episode of The Snob and the Scent Presents. Uh, I've been your host, Matt, and we'll catch you next week. I don't know why you're disregarding this phenomenal idea. They've paid us no money. And I might have made them up, but... (laughs) But it's about the spirit of entrepreneurship. It is. You've got to dress for the job you want. You've got to host for the sponsors you want. That's why this episode's brought to you by the Pentagon. Um, we love war here, guys. Um, there's not a single war that we don't support. You're making our one Israeli ep- uh, listener very happy, I'm assuming, and probably the one UK listener as well. Or very angry, because <laughs> we didn't, I, I've not specified which wars. I said we're for all of them. <laughs> That includes the ones that are, quote, bad. The war on Christmas, the war on childhood obesity. We're taking all sides. Look, the Starbucks cup has to have a Christmas tree on it. The war on drugs. My money's on drugs. We've been fighting it for decades. And who's winning? Drugs. Drugs. We've They've taken a lot more of our lives than we've taken drugs. All right. right so, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you want to go ahead and crack it open in a, like a, you know, introduce the pod? Or if we, are we not even going to coast to that? I just got to know where I'm going to drop the theme song. Um, I mean, I think we're full tilt ready to go, so let's just push off into it. Okay. Go ahead. I don't. Well, I've never hosted this far. Well, yeah, you know, usually you don't speak first, but you decided to. You just ha- you're full of piss and vinegar today. You got to ask me about perishable meats and freezer businesses that don't exist. I think gambling has broken your brain. Again, most of it's free. What do you mean most of it? Well, because I had to put some money into it initially, but right now I'm playing with free money. Oh, the gambling, not this imaginary freezer business. No, I've invested in that, too. 
To who? Who I took bought, your money? I bought a bunch of freezers. <laughs> <laughs> so this is your operation you've started. It's just like a bunch of chest freezers in your parents' garage, and you want people to mail you their meat, and you'll just hold on to it for them. I mean, shh. Don't give it away. Somebody might steal the idea. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Snob and the Scent Presents. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm your host, Michael. And today we're going to be doing 2018's Mandy. But uh, before we get into that, Michael, what have you been watching this week, man? Yeah, so I've been watching all the meat in my freezer go bad. <laughs> yeah. For one. Well, it sounds like you're not the man <laughs> to go to for this business. Well, if I had a freezer service, this wouldn't be a problem. But you are the freezer service. I don't want to talk about it anymore. You sound like, it's like a Papa John's like, man, I wish I knew somebody with a pizza oven. I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> I don't want to be around anymore. I'm going to tear the fucking head off. <laughs> Um, what have I been watching? What please, <laughs> please, what have you been watching? I did watch, I think you should leave a little bit the other night, again. Third season coming out sometime soon. Yeah, excited about that. Um, you know, I, I don't want to have my hopes too high, mm-hmm. because that first episode of season two is yeah. just probably one of the best episodes in sketch comedy I've ever seen. I think, is that the one where they have the Detective Crashmore sketch? Uh, it's the one with uh, Coffin Flop, yeah, uh, which is my favorite. I didn't do shit. I didn't do this. I didn't rig shit. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. All we're doing is filming funerals and showing the ones where the bodies fly out. They think I'm just some dumb hick. They said that to me at a dinner. It's just <laughs> so good. It's so good. I think the uh, one I get the most mileage out of is that I used to be a huge piece of shit. <laughs> and he's like, can I hold the baby? And they're like, uh, and granddad's like, let him hold the baby. I used to be a piece of shit. Spiked, spiked up blonde hair. <laughs> White pants. <laughs> Eating spaghetti chicolini. <laughs> <laughs> There's, so it's. It's funny because, like, I think the only way you can truly label, I think you should leave as autistic humor. But when you say that, people get, like, kind of the connotation of, like, the Rick and Morty oh-so-random obscure references. But, no, I think what it boils down to is just, like, a steamrolling of social norms. That's the root of the comedy, and I think you should leave. It's Most of the sketches break down to, what if the most unreasonable person in every situation somehow won out? <laughs> What if everybody chose to believe the most, like, <laughs> unhinged person in the room? Well, you know, I think that, I th- I think I think you should leave is essentially a criticism of SNL. Yeah. Uh, I think you should leave is funny for all the reasons SNL is not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tim Robinson having been a writer for SNL. Yeah. A lot of these sketches are rejected from SNL. Because it's not Democratic Party propaganda? Well, it's just not traditionally funny. It none of I think you should leave is funny for a reason like it should be funny. Yeah. And to be frank, if you pitch some of these sketches to just anyone, they'd be like, No, that's terrible. Why would you film that? But when you see it executed so well Well, it's like the the scene where he goes to the meeting in the morning and sneaks in a hot or in the, at lunch <laughs> and he sneaks in a can't hot dog. Skip lunch, and because it's like you can't. It's like that's not like it's funny, I guess. <laughs> but if you just like pitch the idea of like, what if we had a guy who uh, was hoping to have a hot dog for lunch, but 
his boss said we're going to have a meeting instead. And then he sneaks it into the meeting and chokes on it. Oh, okay. That's not very funny. But Tim Robinson does such a good job with it. And then after the fact, we've got, you know, you'll be at work and sometimes uh, court runs over through lunch. And there's the guy who's just <laughs> like, he's always got it. He's like routine. Like I eat every day at noon, every day. And so when you run into like 1230 and he's like freaking out about not eating. His blood sugar's like, crashing. You're like, this is a Tim Robbins. Like he, he just leaves because he's like, I can't skip lunch. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you can't fucking do and that. And you're like, this is perfect because it's, it's not like art imitating or life imitating art, but it's like, it's a lot funnier because like, the sketch exists. It's art imitating the human id. Like I said, it's like that steamrolling of social norms and boundaries. It, and so it's just, it's so good. Yeah. It's like, what if I didn't care what everyone in this room thought of me and I just devolved to my base desires, but not in like a gross way, in like a very childish way. Yeah. I mean, it's subversive of comedy. Yeah. And makes it wholly unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I watched that a little bit. <laughs> I uh, think about the TC Tugger shirts a lot because I get a lot of belly sweat and a lot of cling. I saw... Uh, You're playing with the big boys now. That one popped up on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> this morning so i watched it and he's like they're not a joke don't make fun <laughs> don't buy them to make fun of them with your friends i think one don't of, wear them ironically one of the funniest sketches to me is the one where <laughs> the guy like goes to the bathroom and gets drip pee dribble on the front of his pants oh the calico and cut he's pants. like no he didn't be those are calico cut pants they're they're made like that and then he like the rest of the episode he's like thanks man for saving me on that and he's like you gotta give though and he keeps like sending him the really loud yeah. ads that he can't turn off. So about that sketch, I've thought about doing that to you by sending like my coworker that's a volunteer firefighter to your house with like a bunch of dudes like, you got to give Michael, <laughs> you hit me in the cup. <laughs> no. Oh, what are you doing? You're stretching my shirt out like a bell. <laughs> I, um, but I think that's like, it's a really long sketch yeah. <laughs> with no, no payoff. It's nonsensical. But it's, it just devolves into like a fight club type deal. A lot of people give, Michael. You, got, you gotta give. You hit um, me in the cup. So <laughs> that's uh that's a really funny one to me too. But other than that, um I've watched uh been watching Adventure Time some. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's easy watching. It's kinda like the Scooby Doo watching. It's just light, fun, entertaining. And I think the last season of it came on fairly recently. So, and that's done by that Duncan Trussell guy that's always on Joe Rogan. No, I don't think so. I think so. Pendle, whatever his name is. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of a different Cartoon Network show that that guy does. Yeah, I don't think so. This guy's like Pendle Ward or somebody. Hmm. Keep talking about it. Uh, you know, it's your uh, typical post-apocalyptic show uh, where a kid and his magical dog travel around and do adventures. I will say my favorite character is Lemon Grab, mm -hmm. which is problematic because he's voiced by uh, uh, Roland uh, from, what's his first name? Oh, Justin. Ward? Justin Roland. Oh, yeah. Where he's just like, unacceptable. Oh, it's that time. guy? Okay. And it's like, God, I didn't know what? that was Justin. I've heard that clip. That, Unacceptable. Like, why is Lemon Grab got to be voiced by one of the most problematic guys? And then you look at like Rick and Morty and Samantha had mentioned this the other day. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot that Dan Harmon was also super problematic. Yeah. <laughs> For like less problematic by comparison at this point. Mm -hmm. But. 
at this point, he's kind of more known for having like the golden standard of apologies when it comes to being a sex pest. I mean, uh, and that's like a hell of a thing to be praised for. It's like, why does the why are the funny ones always predators? Well, you got adult men working in a child's medium. You know, that should be a red flag off the bat. I'm not saying all voice actors are chomos, but hey. Well, I mean, they're not just working in child mediums, though, because Dan Harmon was buying Community. It's not really a child medium. Pretty childish. It's about community college. Don't don't mock Community. It's so good. Um, You know, he did a lot of stuff with Harmon Quest, like the whole thing. Um, But at the end of the day, it's like, he's not just... Louis C.K. didn't do children's shows. No. He's a predator. Well, I'm not saying if, you, if you're if you a predator, you do children's shows. I'm saying if you do children's shows, you're a predator. I think that's probably at least true for that guy from Disney or yeah. Nickelodeon who made all those shows. Oh, are you talking about uh, fucking the foot guy? Yeah, the foot yeah. guy. Oh, God, what's his name? I don't know. The guy that allegedly got Jamie Lynn Spears pregnant. Yeah, and like got real weird with Ariana Grande and all sorts of people like... Yeah. That guy's creepy. You're right. That guy shouldn't be around kids shows. I think he like played the manager and like all the Good Burger sketches on all that. Which Good Burger 2's coming out. I didn't know that. It's probably going to fucking stink. Yeah. Good Burger's a little past its prime. Mm -hmm. No pun intended. Uh, I never really watched Adventure Time. It was like past my time, I guess. I I would have been watching Cartoon Network shows. I think we were like in high school when that came out. Yeah. Maybe a little. I don't know if it's a little earlier, but Mm. yeah. Is that something like Sam watched growing up since she's a couple years younger than us? No, I I watched it independently. Oh. (laughs) I always just kind of liked it. I watched this alone. This is for me. It's a good show. I've learned a lot about myself and accepting others. Yeah. I mean, you you (laughs) learn a lot. You know, you're like, what do I learn from Ice King? Well, you can't abduct women. And try to force them to marry you. See? There's another red flag. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Mm. It's like, don't do it. Nobody mm. likes that guy. Mm. Nope. I mean, do you like that guy? I, I kind of like Ice King, from what I know of the show. <laughs> I mean, I like Ice King too, but do you <laughs> like people that... like? Do you like Abduct the idea women? of abducting women to try to force them to marry you? It seems like a lot of work, and I'm not particularly rushing to get married. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not the complaint you should have with that, but yeah. <laughs> We're in agreement. We don't like doing that. Mm. We have different motivations for why we don't like it. But you could say something about the creator if they're making that plot line, even if it's to say that's a bad thing to do. But isn't that character kind of sympathetic? I mean, he's pathetic. Yeah, that's a type of sympathy. I know. Well, sympathy is the way you feel toward him. Mm. Um, But he is also just pathetic i mean he himself is a sad loser who's abducting women and if you identify with him and go i just really wish one of these women would agree to being kidnapped who's the character from that show i watched one single episode with my buddy ben biles once when we were working at carabas because he said it was like the funniest thing and i'll admit the episode was pretty funny but there was like some evil king and his whole thing was like spanking his subjects he's like a little goblin king (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's just all about spanking people yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a good. Episode. That's it. That's it. That's the episode. You got it. I remember once he like walks up and like kicks a cup out of somebody's hand and goes boom, and then just rushes into a full spanking. Yeah, there's some there's some gold in there. Uh, let's see what else. Well, I'm still working through One Piece. I'm on episode like 54 of 10,232. Have you trimmed your beard since you started? Yes. Ugh. Obviously. 
I don't have 10 years to grow a beard out. Well, I thought you were really about this pirate in lifestyle. I'm not. <laughs> I can't stand pirates. You should pay for all of your media all the time. You wouldn't download a ship. I would. <laughs> You're telling me I could download a bunch. <laughs> you wouldn't download a car. I would. <laughs> I wouldn't download music. But you tell me I can download a house? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll tell you, Spotify is like one example of where capitalism has beaten piracy. You just put it at a reasonable price point and you have everything easily available and there's no reason to steal. Yeah, if you, only they could do that with all other media. I don't have to deal with uh, stream uh, torning services. Mm-hmm. I don't have to like go, man, if I download this Beastie Boys anthology, is it going to give me viruses? Like, I can just pay them. And I don't know if it'll give you viruses, but it will make you ill. <laughs> Well, there's a license for that. Yeah. Well, uh, of course, it's sanctioned. We're not animals. Uh, but, you know, you get you get the service. You get all, almost all the music you could ever want, all the podcasts you could ever want. It's not that we're sponsored by Spotify. No. But Spotify is a great service. And you're right. It's at a reasonable price. And it makes it so that you have no incentive to pirate other than I just don't like to have pay th- for things. Mm-hmm. But it's more work. Yeah. Like, I'll pay you $15 a month so that I don't have to, like, get music other ways. Or risk bricking my computer. Or get in trouble or whatever. Like, I can just have a subscription service and listen whatever I want as much as I want. And at the end of the year, you find out you're in the top 1% of System of a Down listeners. I was in the top 0.5% of Danzig listeners one year. That was my spookiest year. <laughs> the spookiest? Yeah, Danzig's spooky. Let's see. I, um... I know I was pretty proud of mine this past year. I don't think I'm going to be able to share my Spotify tops from here on out since I've just been looping our own podcast for views. I will say that none of my top five podcasts are our podcast. Wow. Well, I mean, we didn't... It's mostly last podcast on the left. I don't think I uploaded our first episode till like November or something. Because remember, I, we had like three or four edited. I lied. I'm not in the top 1% of System of a Down listeners. I'm in the top 5%. Hmm. Hmm. I played 22,516 minutes, and that makes me in the top 25% of U.S. listeners. I think that makes you like an honorary Armenian. You need to start driving a Mercedes-Benz. Why does it make me an honorary Armenian? Oh, System of a Down. Yeah. I meant total. Uh, 22,000 minutes total for like all of Spotify. Okay. I like to listen to podcasts when I sleep. I was going to say, you got to start wearing all wide and driving a BMW. Uh, do I have to slob squat or is that too far southwest? I don't know that that's really an Armenian thing. I mean, I assume that maybe they all kind of, if you like touch Russia, you slob squat. Yeah. I always associate them more with Central Asia, I guess. I think of them more as like a stand country. Yeah. I don't know. I, there seems like a difference in Armenia and like Pakistan or Afghanistan or well, they would like They would like you to think so. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, maybe because they're Christian nations, that kind of makes me put them more in line with Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Middle Eastern countries. Maybe. I don't know. Some kind of weird Eastern Orthodox Christian. I wouldn't say weird Eastern Orthodox Christian. I think you'd just say Eastern Orthodox Christian. Nah, that shit's weird. You have you Easter the, on a different day? What's we, your fucking problem, you've bro? You've got a, the black pope as opposed to the white pope? What is that about? Woke has gone too far. <laughs> they made a black pope. Oh, that reminds me. I got I got on this rabbit trail about um rabbit gosh, trail. I forget I forget her name. 
Um, you mean a rabbit hole? Same kind of thing. The trails lead down holes. No, it's just not the. Adage. I'm mixing my metaphors. Get over it. Yeah. Uh, it's the Kentucky woman who didn't want to do uh, marriage licenses. Kim Davis. Mm. I got on this rabbit trail looking at how like much Kim Davis sucked. That was like 10 years ago. Yeah. And what I learned was that she sucked so much and hated gay marriage so much that the Pope said, I've got to meet this woman. <laughs> and like... Was this uh, the Pope that resigned or the current Pope? The, the previous Pope. Okay. Francis. Pope Francis. I couldn't remember if Benedict was on the resigned or Benedict's the current one. Benedict's the previous one. Okay. That's the one that resigned. All right. Or died. Uh, John Paul II is the one that died. Oh, we'll see which one she met with, because yeah. this is probably important, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm looking at it because I think the current pope's supposed to be like cool with the gays. I mean, yeah, it was Pope Francis. Yeah, but it's like how you you've got to suck so bad and be so hateful that the pope's like the king of pedophilia must get, request your audience get this get this hateful woman to me now i must have i need her. to shake her hand i need to pick her brain <laughs> oh but funny enough so uh she ran in kentucky as a democrat really prior to that and was uh, winning prior and then once all that happened she switched to being a republican mm -hmm. and then immediately lost <laughs> yeah so good on kentucky for that one at least that one county yeah. But yeah, so we've gone pretty far astray on this one. I was going to ask you if you want to talk about uh, The Last of Us for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, spoilers ahead. Mm-hmm. The Last of Us ended strong. I think so. Um, the second to last episode, though, I think outshines the last episode. I agree with that. The scene where she just hatchets his head. After snapping his thumb. Yeah, it's like he goes to rape her, so he just, she just brutally smashes his head apart mm -hmm. after setting a place on fire. Yeah. Gold. The uh, guy that played his right-hand man was the voice actor for Joel. Oh, yeah, I forget yeah. his name now. And then in this season finale episode, the, uh, the voice actress for Ellie played Ellie's mother. Yeah, and so I think there's a, a bunch of... They've done a good job of including the voice actors mm -hmm. in a lot of roles in the show. Yeah. So kudos for them for like bringing that in. I think that's a really cool fact. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like, you're going to use that IP, make it so that everybody benefits from it, or at least gets to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much they're getting paid for that, but I'd like to imagine they get paid decently. Yeah. Well, at the very least, they can start getting SAG credits, because I don't think voice actors get those benefits. Oh, I don't know. I don't think they're considered screen actors. Oh, is there not a voice actors guild? <laughs> Fuck no, dude. They get <laughs> fucked over constantly. <laughs> that's a terrible... The voice actors guild would just be badge. their badge. <laughs> well, that's better than the <laughs> Team America World Police, the film actors guild. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but anyway... Yeah. Uh, I, I will say the end, the last episode very satisfying mm -hmm. when Joel goes through, they're like, Hey, we're going to cut her brain out. You're not going to see her again. He's like, I don't think so. You're actually not. Yeah. Actually. And no. I was talking to Samantha and I was like, he's going to kill every single person in this building. And she's like, no, there's way too many people. And I was like, no, he's no. killing them all. That was the most like video game the show ever got. But honestly, that was a great action sequence. I will say that action sequence versus Ellie's in the previous episode. That's way better. Yeah, I think that, Ellie's is really satisfying. Yeah, I just love the way that action scene was shot with the like third person over the shoulder like you're playing the video game. Well, and with him, you know, grabbing guns, reloading, dropping guns, getting new guns. It Looking really, like right. Ponytail Val Kilmer it, out there, baby. It really did 
have this like video game feel, John Wick feel to it. Mm-hmm. But with very somber music in the background. Yeah. Like it's not like it wasn't a fuck. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. It was like a, I can't, I'm having to do this. This is going to emotionally scar my character and probably damage the future relationship with Ellie, but it's something I think must be done. Yeah. As best I can tell, this first season covered the entire first game. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the case. Because I never played it, and I dang old exclusives. See, I know how the first game begins. I know how it ends. I know how the second game begins. Don't know how it ends. Don't spoil the game for me. Okay, then. It was a joke. No, I'm just going to sit here quiet. Because, you know, the whole show is spoiling the game for me. Well, the also, I don't have a way to play the game. The surgeon that Joel kills at the, in the season finale, I believe his daughter later beats Joel to death with a bat as revenge. And that's how the second game starts. Oh. Yeah. We'll see if that's how the season starts. Yeah. Well, I thought they might have been subverting it by like two episodes back when Joel gets stabbed with that uh, the handle of a baseball bat. I was like, oh, that might be like a clever thing. It's like, oh, no, they changed how he dies. But no. I'm guessing it's still going to go the way of the game. Is his, one of his daughters the the nurses that he didn't kill? I don't know. I know. In the, I mean, how else would anybody know that he killed everybody? Yeah, he left those two witnesses alive. You know, mm-hmm. should have killed them all. Killed Marlene. I mean, if you're going to kill every single person, you might as well finish on the two nurses who were equally involved as the doctor. I guess so. I mean, they're just as complicit. Yeah. But whatever. That might just be where Joel draws the line as shooting unarmed women, even though he killed Marlene. Marlene had a gun. She had a gun she was reaching for that she wasn't going to get to. No. Well, well, he shot her in the gut. I'm talking about when he executed her after uh, shooting her. Yes, because she had a gun originally. She uh-huh. walks up and pulls a gun on him. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. But yeah, so really strong ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the second season. What about you? What'd you watch? So, uh, as I mentioned last episode, it was a bunch of March Madness. I haven't been watching a whole lot, uh, but I have been picking up Blood Meridian again. But hasn't March Madness only been going on for like a... A week? Well, this is the last episode of uh, Nicolas Cage month, so no. In fact, it's already over by the time people are hearing this. But by the time it's recorded, March Madness started two days ago. You've been watching it for two weeks? <laughs> yeah, we're recording this on March 2nd. Wow, that didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I've been reading through Blood Meridian again, which maybe wasn't the best call, considering I haven't been having the best like mental health lately, and it's the darkest fucking book ever written. I was organizing my li- my bookshelf today, and I think I bought a copy of Blood Meridian, and I have not cracked it open. I might have loaned you my old copy because I had to buy a new one. <laughs> That's probably my copy. I was like, this is that book Matt's always talking about. I don't know how I got it. Does it have like a watercolor like landscape for the no, cover? No idea. I didn't. I don't remember. <laughs> I didn't inspect. Well, enjoy- do I also have your copy of it? <laughs> Yeah, my copy of a do I also I also Salem's, have a copy of lot. Salem's lot. I think you also have my Chapo Trap House book. I do. Yeah, that was on the bedside table. I haven't moved it in a while. You know, I would say enjoy, but uh, I don't. <laughs> I don't reckon you are. <laughs> but should can, you ever get the inkling, Blood Meridian is very much worth your time. It's, you can always have them back instead of buying a new one. Well, you know, that's just how I spread my love of media. Well, I mean, just ask next time. I'm more than happy to let you borrow it. <laughs> You're going to let me borrow it? You fucking cocksucker. <laughs> well, I mean, if I'd known you were going to buy another copy of Blood Meridian and you reminded me that I borrowed it, I'd give it back to you. I hope your home is sieged by a Comanche horde. That's not fair. <laughs> 
I hope you're home safe. <laughs> like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> I hope they get in. <laughs> I hope they show up to your house wearing all manner of military uniform that don't match. <laughs> uh, I hope they throw a horse through your window. <laughs> but yeah, I'm back on a big uh, Cormac McCarthy kick. The reason I want to go through Blood Meridian again is he just put out two novels that are like companion novels and it's the first thing he's put out in 16 years since he wrote uh the road which was also amazing and i feel like i need to get back into like mental shape before i can read his shit because he's one of those writers that's like obsessed with language to like the degree that he's been doing studies with the santa fe institute for the past 16 years on like the neurological impact of language on the brain so he wants the words to be especially impactful he really took the movie pontypool to heart is what i'm saying but uh blood meridian is very challenging to read in that it's well number one the only punctuation are periods and spaces there's no quotation marks, so going through a dialogue can be very difficult. So for that, I recommend doing the audiobook on your first time through it. But there's also like different types of English that he uses, from like, you know, period appropriate, you know, slang of the era to like King James English to like Melvillian English. But there's also a bunch of untranslated Spanish passages and a bunch of the different uh, native dialects, the Apache, the Comanche, uh, the Yuma. So he's a real Herman Melville. I guess so. Yeah. uh, So there are a lot of uh, Moby Dick allusions throughout Blood Meridian. I just mean, it sounds like he's writing stuff to be intentionally difficult to read. I wouldn't say that. I think he's more in line with a William Faulkner type where it's like very bare bones. It's not that he's, I mean, he is throwing you a bunch of vocabulary words you have to look up and then once you figure out what it means it's going to turn your stomach inside out i had to learn what a fontanelle was do you know what a fontanelle is mm-hmm. that's i'm that oh, sorry go ahead i was going to guess is it a nail that you find in a fountain no it is the medical term for a baby's soft spot and you find that out in blood meridian because a character spoil it. smashes two native american babies together that's rough yeah it's rough uh well, but it sounds like, not to be critical, I've never read it. Uh, yeah. I've borrowed it for a while. <laughs> but if you don't, it sounds like it's intentionally sloppy and that it doesn't, it's in regard to maybe punctuation, mm. and then uh, intentionally obtuse to have like a barrier of entry so that it's not just a book anybody picks up. You got to really want to finish it. Well, there's layers to it. You can definitely get through it and understand the plot without diving into all the different illusions. Well, I just mean like... Not, it's not using quotations and things. Yeah. It's just kind of a harder and changing the kind of English you use. Well, that's kind of a staple of Southern Gothic writing. Like I said, it harkens back to William Faulkner and authors like that, where it's written in the dialect of the time and place. So, I mean, maybe I, as a Southerner, have an easier time reading like that, as opposed to someone that doesn't pick up on those types of dialects as easy. I have to give it a shot. Yeah. Because I hate Herman Melville. Yeah, it's nothing like Moby Dick. I mean, obviously Cormac McCarthy's a fan, but like I think it's much more the way I've described it and its obsession with language makes it sound kind of overly academic and navel gazy, but it's yeah. it's frankly the opposite in just the sheer brutality of it. Yeah, I, I mean I guess my concern is like I remember when I had to read Herman Melville in undergrad and I thought to myself because I think I had to read um um I've only read an abridged version of Moby Dick. There's another uh billy bud okay i had to read that in undergrad and like i'm reading reading herman melville stuff and i think to myself this guy was writing for himself 
Yeah. He was not writing for anyone to read it. He was writing to say, I wrote this book and you might want to read it, uh, but you're going to have to be smart enough to read it because I made it too complicated. <laughs> that kind of sounds a lot. That's how I think of a uh, fucking, oh, God damn, I can't remember his fucking name. Old Man in the Sea. Oh, uh, yeah. Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. It's just one of those guys that mm. is like, books shouldn't be accessible to just anybody. And I don't mean like physically accessible, but like uh, intellectually accessible. Like it needs, there needs to be a barrier of to entry. Like when the Catholics said, we're not going to let anybody read this Bible in anything other than Latin. Yeah. And then Martin Luther's like, we put a little German in it. What if it was in English and mass produced? No. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that. Cormac McCarthy, he's definitely not trying to hold your hand. I will say that. It is a challenging book to read, but I don't think he's being so esoteric that he doesn't want you to finish. And it's a it's a very philosophical book. It's it's extremely nihilistic, but it's explicitly anti Nietzschean in that it's I think Nietzsche always got misunderstood as being a doom and gloom kind of guy when really he was kind of like the first self help dude. He was more about progression and building yourself up. Whereas this is about more uh war as a means of enacting agency violence as a means to know that you exist and uh he presents this philosophy through a character that's literally the devil so you're not supposed to really take that as this is what cormac mccarthy believes well i'll tell you what i believe yeah i'm a nihilist and i believe in nothing they believe in nothing lebowski we text it from you um all right well maybe i'll start a side podcast of literature just have like a collection and drop them all at once just you yeah i mean i figure asking you to watch you know this many movies is taxing enough working and reading a novel might be a big ask especially yeah. if i'm making you read mccarthy I, I read enough during a week yeah but all right so that's fun yeah are you ready to move into my enemy of the pod this week oh yeah who's your enemy of the pod I can't stop crying. Fuck you! You suck! Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. My enemy of the pod this week is the Oscars. As an institution, I have no real feelings about the winners of this past awards show. I mean, everything everywhere all at once is fine i when you started this i thought you were mad about the fish the fish yeah the oscar fish what what happened with the oscar i just thought you had a problem with fish what are you talking about oscars they're a type of fish i thought your enemy was gonna just be you don't like the fish there's a fish called an oscar yeah condition precedent to this joke was you knowing that so uh the oscars was started in the mid 30s as a union busting tactic by mr mayor uh who founded mgm metro goldwyn uh, mayor meyer mr meyer Metron Goldwyn Meyer. It was started as a union busting tactic to get filmmakers to accept less money from the studios in order to make a more competitive film. In that, well, you trick these artists into thinking that this gold statue isn't just validation for your work. This is going to be your ticket into bigger opportunities with the studio. But you get caught in that same flux of competition between the studios that you're always going to be underpaid for your work. Well, and you're getting paid an experience. Yeah, you're getting paid an exposure. Yeah. And also, well, there's the fact that the Oscars have always been rigged. It's the fact that it's not something that's voted on by the public by default kind of makes it 
rigged if it's only people within the industry voting, and yet they still spend tens of millions of dollars advertising to people that are already in the Academy. Because you see the advertisements, you know, for your consideration whenever a film comes out around Oscar season, but that's not for you. That's not for you to see because you can't do anything about it. It's just, it's a big circle joke by a giant pedophilic industry you know i've never once paid attention to the oscars as you shouldn't um you know it's one of those things where uh, you're right i don't vote for it Mm -hmm. and i don't care what a bunch of stuffy shirt corporate guys think about a movie um most of the time it seems to me oscar picks are like some of the worst movies i've seen that year yeah so i've never given it much credit whenever i see what's been nominated I make a mental note. It's like, okay, if I catch that stream and I'll check it out because clearly someone saw fit to invest millions of dollars after the movie's already been produced. So not even included in its budget. Someone saw fit to spend this much money to push it. So it's worth looking at. But as for who actually wins, it's negligible. I never watched The Sound of Water. Uh, The Shape of Water. The Shape of Water. Yeah. Isn't that like a horny version of Creature from the Black Lagoon? I, I think someone has sex with a dolphin. Yeah, there's like a fish man. You know, the one thing that makes me want to watch it is that Michael Shannon plays the bad guy and he's perfect at playing bad guys. Does he have sex with a dolphin? I don't believe so. I think he just kind of cattle prods the dolphin man a bunch. Okay. Uh, Regardless. uh, Yeah, I mean, that was one of those movies where it was like, this is the greatest movie. I was like, I don't know if I want to watch the movie about a guy having sex with a dolphin. Yeah. Well, it's a lady having sex with a dolphin, from what I recall. I don't even know. I, I I lost my attention at dolphin. I remember this one film podcast I was listening to. Uh, one of the hosts was joking about him and his girl like to do Shape of Water role play where she just feeds him boiled eggs while he's in the shower. Because <laughs> I guess that happens in the movie. She feeds him a lot of hard-boiled eggs. <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds awful. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yeah. And then what? was it the, It was at the Oscars where Will Smith smacked Chris Rock, right? Or was that the Emmys? That was the Oscars, and that's the best thing that's happened in the Oscars in years. I've actually watched two stand-up specials entirely about that. Yeah, it's like, I don't care. Like I'm, I'm glad they took Will Smith's Oscar away. Did they? Yeah. For King Richard? Yeah, they like, you don't get that since you slapped him. And it's like, I, I don't really care f- who gets it, but mm-hmm. it is nice that there was a consequence. After his acceptance speech, I've started using the phrase he used... I'm a river to my people. <laughs> and if you're wondering what my people are, it's uncles. I'm a river to my people, Michael. I like to be an inspiration to all uncles out there. You see, uncles are problematic. No, we're God's chosen people. It makes you sound problematic. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like some only child shit. You sound like somebody that's never going to get to be an uncle. Uh, uh, Your parents you deprived you of that uh, ability to become an uncle. Oh, fair enough. This sounds like sour grapes to me. That's what it sounds like. I'll never get to be a creepy uncle in a wolf shirt. I don't own any wolf shirts, but I do have my eye out for some. (laughs) Wait, we've been over this. He's referencing the uncle daycare sketch from Gillian Keeves. And if I'm any of those uncles, I'm the neck brace uncle. Mm, No. Either the neck brace uncle or the uncle that's always kneeling. (laughs) My mom wanted me to say thanks for the thoughts and prayers for our iguana. (laughs) Oh, man. So, um... You ready to jump into this movie, man? We're at, like, 40 minutes already. (laughs) Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. (laughs) All right. Unless you had something else to say about the Oscars. No, I don't have anything about the Oscars. Okay.
Mandy from 2018 was written and directed by Panos Cosmostos. Uh, it was produced by Elijah Wood, lifelong horror fan. Elijah Wood has been behind a lot of the great horror films that have come out in the last 10 years or so. And it's usually behind the scenes stuff. Well, you know, the journey to Mordor is pretty traumatic. Yeah. It give you a lot of inspiration on how to write horror. Okay, Michael. <laughs> I'm sorry, you don't like Elijah Wood facts? <laughs> the film stars Nicolas Cage, Andrea Risebrero, Linus Roach, Ned Dennehy, Richard Brake, and Bill Duke. The music was done by Johan Johansson, who uh, the film is dedicated to. I believe he passed away shortly after finishing the score. The budget for this film was $6 million with a box office return of $1.7 million. But with this being a Shutter exclusive, I'm imagining that's the amount of money it garnered prior to being bought for distribution through Shutter. So I imagine, you know, they made more than their money back on that. I did. Uh, I do appreciate a good Shutter exclusive. Mm-hmm. So there's been some quality ones. Evan's a lot more up on it than I am. Yeah, there's I forget. I've seen some other Shutter exclusives that have. I mean, it's a bunch of like really nuanced Shutter exclusives. I like a lot of their original documentaries about horror films, but that's just kind of my shit. I definitely think there are like some real deep cuts on there. Mm-hmm. But that aside, um, I think Shutter usually does a good job. Yeah. You want to break down the synopsis for us? Yeah. So Mandy opens up with uh, a title card that says The Shadow Mountains, 1983 AD. Mm-hmm. So uh, puts us in our setting. We're set in the, the mid, uh, early mid-80s. You've got Nicolas Cage, who plays Red. You've got Andrea Riseborough, who plays Mandy. Um, they have this house in the middle of the woods next to uh, Crystal Lake. So I like to imagine this is in the same setting as Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a house made out of windows. Yeah. It's just windows. The setting feels very Pacific Northwest, which I guess it kind of is. But when I was looking through the, what the shadow mountains are, that's Eastern California. So I guess Northern California too. Yeah. That, I think that would get you in the mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest. That's the racist part of California. NorCal. Yeah, well, Orange County's pretty racist too. Yeah. But I think when you really talk about the parts of California that are real red. Yeah. It's Northern California. It's like biker racist. So the movie is somewhat, uh, surreal. I didn't know that it was a period piece. I didn't know that it said it was set in 83. Yeah. Right there in the title card. If you paid attention when you watched it, it was, it was quite obvious. Um, that's what you get with, uh, with me on, uh, on watching these is, uh, I pay a lot of attention. So you're welcome. Uh, it's real surrealic. She and dreamlike. Um, there's several scenes toward the beginning where it's hard to tell really what's going on. But uh, Mandy spends a lot of time looking at this uh, fawn in the woods that may be dead. Sometimes looks like it has two heads. It looks scaly. Like yeah, it, it's 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 real weird. It, mm-hmm. It's very on the uh, outset of this. It's important to note that it's very Lovecraftian. Yes. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of use of light and colors and a kind of intentional darkness to keep things mysterious and unknown. Um, but we, uh, we get to kind of this back and forth about where they're dreaming and whatnot. And they wake up from sleeping. This is red and Mandy. Mandy delivers a monologue about how her dad 
made them beat a bag of starlings, starlings to death with a crowbar because they were eating cherries out of a cherry tree. I have no real idea why. I will say that was the most flat and monotone monologue delivery I've ever heard. Yeah, Nicolas Cage is like literally sleeping while she's saying all this. His and, eyes are shut. And like, my first main complaint for this movie was this monologue. <laughs> To be honest, I really don't like Mandy that much. Mandy's not a likable character. She's just kind of doe-eyed staring down the camera the whole time. Like, she's much better felt throughout the film in, like, the animated sequences after she dies, I feel. I feel those do a better job of showing what she means to Nicolas Cage's character better than when she's actually present in the film. I agree. She's, She's very flat as far as characters go. Sorry to jump ahead. No, that's okay. Um, and so... You've got, you basically have that story. There's a little bit more back and forth, but then you cut to a new title card that just says Children of the New Dawn. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, before we cut to Children of the New Dawn, you have a, a red dreamlike sequence where Mandy's walking down a road and she sees headlights. Then you cut to the title scene, a title card of Children of the New Dawn. You meet a guy named Jeremiah Sand, who is the leader of a Christian cult. He's the man. He he is the man. He's very mean to uh, yeah. this gray-headed cultist, which I don't know if we learn her name uh, during the show. I'm sure the there's show, a credit, yeah. But she she is credited, but I don't know if we ever actually hear her name at mm-hmm. any point. Um, you don't find this out until later, but he's also a failed folk singer. I don't know if he's failed. <laughs> he did get his record pressed to vinyl, but, um, you know, so did Charles Manson. And would you say he's a failed folk singer? Yes. He's, yes, he's, I would. He's an extremely famous folk singer. Now, you want to talk about a successful folk singer. Uh, oh, shit. Who was the guy that shot Reagan? Reagan? Uh, Hickley? Hinkley? <laughs> Hinkley. Yeah. Great folk singer. Uh, not a fan of Jodie Foster, though. Oh, he's a big fan of <laughs> Jodie Foster. The biggest. Um, so, then... Did you see that interview where she said she was kind of impressed? <laughs> no. She straight up said that in an interview when asked about John Hinckley. She was like, well, it was pretty impressive. <laughs> I mean, it is a way to confess your love. Yeah. Anyway, so then we meet Brother Swan, who is... Uh, Linus... Ro- no, Linus Roach plays Jeremiah Sand. I believe that's Ned Dennehy. Maybe. Um, he's a, a real square. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this weird scene. This is where you start really getting getting kind of deep into this Lovecraftian sense of Jeremiah asked Brother Swan if he has the horn of Abraxas, mm-hmm. which is um, an Egyptian, the Egyptian gods looked at Abraxas as a supreme god. And so there's also some biblical ori- uh, origins for Abraxas, but I think the most clear definition for Abraxas is it's a supreme god of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um and then I would consider this probably like they're they're using this on par with like the Horn of Jericho or something. Yeah. Um, There's also a really terrible movie with Jesse the Body Ventura called Abraxas. <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen that one. Uh, then we entered we're introduced to Sister Lucy, yes, who is Jeremiah's sex slave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ultimately, what we find out is somehow Jeremiah either saw Mandy in some kind of vision or. There really was an encounter where he sees her on the road. Mm-hmm. We have uh, we have no idea, for, uh, you know, as we sit, what's really happened. But there is a sense of these people are following him, and there's a clear sense of some kind of force going on. Um, 
you see really well just how deep he has his hooks into his followers, how like poisonous and manipulative he can be towards them. Very classic cult leader. Um, any of the greats, he's right on par with them. Yeah, one of the except he's only got like six followers. Yeah, the elderly woman that's one of his followers asks, you know, what did I do wrong? And he goes, everything you do is wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's real mean to her, uh, which to be fair uh, is nice. Yeah, she sucks. <laughs> Um, so anyway, but she's his most sensual lover. So, uh, the next thing that happens is brother Swan is instructed to go get Mandy. So brother Swan takes the horn of Abraxas, the, uh, Mark, uh, Knopfler twins, mm-hmm. blonde Mark Knopfler and brunette Mark Knopfler from dire straits. Yeah, um, I, I get it. And, and the pork money for nothing and the porker. The porker, I swear to God, that was Thurman <laughs> Merman from Bad Santa. It might yes. actually be that kid. It I'm, might be that kid. I'm not being an asshole because when they did the Bad Santa 2 and he's all grown up, it looks exactly like that guy. <laughs> Shit happens when you party naked. You need to get the answer to that while we sit here. Okay, you, you keep talking. So they uh, blow the horn of Abraxas and these three guys show up two motorcycles, one ATV. Um, they're all dressed up at, in like Hellraiser outfits. They uh, kind of remind me of the plague from Hobo with the shotgun. If you've seen that, I haven't, but you know, they're all in, in gimp gear. Um, one of them's covered in like metal studs, like rebar. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hand him what is presumably hand. One of them was, uh, appears to be a jar of blood. He drinks it. He's like, give me more blood. And they're like, do this first. Cut to, they're breaking into Red and Mandy's home, abducting Red and Mandy. They um, they take Mandy. They tie Red up with barbed wire in the backyard. And that's when things kind of get real weird. Um, um, they also take... By chance, is this character credited as fuck pig? <laughs> sorry, I'm still looking up the Thurman Merman. I don't know. Okay, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Porker gets given to the Dark Riders, as I grew to call them, and his lard ass wouldn't recognize his own nose in a mirror. They did describe that. They say that about him. So he is a sacrifice, and they eat him. So Jeremiah, uh, the crew, which is the concubine and the gray-headed woman, uh, put some kind of drop of drug in her eye maybe lsd liquid lsd yeah um and then they sting her with a big ass wasp yeah i'm not sure what that was about she goes on a trip mm-hmm. and they like walk her into this room in their house like their living room in the in the the wasp Red's is house. like half soaked in formaldehyde but still alive how'd you know it was formaldehyde i mean i don't know what else you'd store it in i mean i don't think it would be alive in that i, I wouldn't there's, either there's a mystical characteristic to whatever this is yeah so she goes on this trip and that's where we get to see Jeremiah and all of his crew. They're all like zooted. He's got like a terry cloth robe that has built in shoulder pads. He does. And like everybody, it's important to know, like everybody's pupils are so dilated. Mm-hmm. Like it's just pupil. And I think this is the first time when the film takes on the magenta hue that's on it throughout most of the film. Uh, you've got a real red hue for a huge portion of the early part of it too, mm-hmm. though. But you get, at this point, uh, Jeremiah's like trying to convince, starting his like speech about why she needs to be in the cult and be his sex slave. 
And so he's like, do you like the Carpenters? I think that music is the best way to communicate. Mm-hmm. This is better than the Carpenters. Yeah. <laughs> and he puts on, and I really hope you uh, can get a copy of that to play it podcast. Oh, his little folk song? <laughs> yes. I- I'm sure I can find it, because the song's entirely about him, about how Jeremiah was once a broken man, but sat- found the light. It's trash. Yeah. And so he, like, gets in front of her and starts, like preaching and proselytizing and opens his robe up and shows her his penis and uh there's a really interesting back and forth that they have where she goes manny says you made this song yes and it's and it's about you and he's like yes and then she just starts laughing for like two minutes and if it's one thing you need to know about cult leaders they do not appreciate their dicks being laughed at (laughs) so Jeremiah just starts yelling, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> and I swear he yells it ten times before he starts yelling, Don't you fucking look at me! Mm-hmm. Don't you fucking look at me! Yeah, he turns into Dennis Hopper in blue uh, velvet. <laughs> and so he he's like done with her. And then he goes and runs off and stares into a mirror. There's a really cool effect, though, when he's talking to her oh, yeah. and, like, her face superimposes over his. Like, you can hear, it, the way you really notice it is you you hear him talking, and then you stop seeing uh, his lips moving, and you start to see the scar that she has on mm-hmm. her eye show up. I agree, that is a pretty cool effect. And then, so after, <laughs> once that Don't happens. you fucking look at me! Once that happens, he goes to the mirror. Are you laughing and, at my dick? And starts staring in the mirror going. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. What do I do? Tell me what to do. And then he answers himself back with, don't ever doubt yourself. (laughs) You know, that's good advice. (laughs) And then cut to, they're in the yard with Nicolas Cage. They like stab him in the rib with some crazy dagger with an eyeball in it. Yeah. Uh, He has this speech about the biggest flaw with Christianity is that Jesus didn't have a tribute for his sacrifice. And that the crucifix is the biggest reminder of, of that. The cruciform. The cruciform, yeah. And so they stab uh, Red in the ribs with this crazy dagger. Then they drag the the body. Uh, presumably, Mandy's already dead. I think she's still alive. I, I don't know, but you don't see her. Yeah. They drag a, a... She's like stuffed in a sleeping bag. Yeah, they and with a rope on it. They like have a... Uh, a sp- not really a spit, but some kind of lift over mm-hmm. uh, out in the middle of the yard. So they like crank her up on that. So she's in the air and then they light her on fire. And then brunette Mark Nomfer, or Nomfer is back there just like yanking on the rope so that it's yeah. dancing around while it's on fire all in front of red. They shoot. That's right. You got to get them refrigerators. We yes. like to say the F slur. <laughs> yeah. That song does do that. A couple times. Um, so then they leave. Uh, Red pulls his wrist free from the barbed wire. He goes inside, watches a commercial for the Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> I love the Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> Who just vomits macaroni <laughs> and cheese on kids. <laughs> um, then he goes into the bathroom. And I will note, at this point in the movie, like Nicolas Cage has said all of six words. Yeah. And then he goes into the bathroom, grabs a bottle of vodka... And starts chugging it. He Pour- takes down about two thirds of it, which, to my estimate, we're dealing at about sixteen to twenty shots. 
Yeah, so he, he starts chugging it, and then he pours it on his wounds, then he chugs more of it, and then he just starts cage yelling. While sitting on the toilet, which we've all been there, brother, just, <laughs> ah, ah, ah! And uh, he gets his shit together, and so then there's a scene earlier uh, when they're, when Mandy's in the LSD trip where she says the Reaper is coming, mm-hmm. which was really good foreshadowing, I think, because... The next thing after K after Red has his yelling fit, he goes and meets a, a guy in the trailer. I forget who the actor is. That is Bill Duke. Yeah. He goes and he's like, what do you want? He's like, I'm here for the Reaper. Mm-hmm. And so like the Reaper is this crossbow that he has. It's sick as fuck too. Um, and then he gets some. Cross- I don't know much about crossbows, but that one looks nice. It, it does look nice. Um, he gets the crossbow and some bolts that uh, Duke had made for him. And then he goes home to his smithy yeah, and cast a battle axe, mm-hmm. which, by the way, casting a weapon like that's not the best way to make one. And you can tell during the forging process, he's got some major stress cracks that all just disappear. But what he ends up with is this badass battle axe. Well, I like how he makes a handle and then makes that handle serrated. It's like, well, I guess you didn't want to grab it too bad. Well, he has like a handle up in the blade where he can hold it and then he's got a lower one. But then it's serrated above his hand and then there's a bladed dagger on the bottom half Mm -hmm. of it. It's really cool. He uses it more as a sickle than an axe. (laughs) Yeah, except for that one time he just chucks it at blonde Mark. Yeah. Uh, But anyway... Uh, a little fat. <laughs> Quit it. I didn't say it. <laughs> yes, you did. He's a millionaire. Um, so then we just move forward. We get another title card that just says Mandy. And then we cut to Red is like hiding in uh, a, a, a deer stand watching the road. He shoots one of the dark riders off his motorcycle drives his truck over and runs him over, but somehow flips the truck, yeah. which gets Red captured again. Well, he's driving like a Bronco. It's a big-ass truck. I, I think it's a Blazer. It's a Blazer? Yeah, I think he's driving like an old Blazer. Mm. And uh, and so it flips over this guy. And then he comes to, he's chained to a radiator with one hand nailed to the floor. Um, what The Dark Rider I refer to as Hissy. Yeah. Uh, like hisses at him. I call him shirt ripper and cuts his shirt. And he's like, that's my favorite shirt. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, anyway, he breaks free, busts that guy down. He falls into a pit in the floor. We don't know why that's there. Walks upstairs to what appears to be a mobile home. Sees two old dead people in there. Then he observes, um, I call this guy the grunter. Yes. Um, He's just like got a mountain of coke, mm-hmm. and he's just watching porn, a VHS porno, and slamming his face in a mountain of coke and just grunting. They get in a tussle. He ends up killing him. Then the hisser comes back, and then I think my favorite thing about the hisser <laughs> is he starts fighting with him, you and he just goes, shirt. "You ripped my shirt." He says it like three times. Yeah. You ripped my shirt. You ripped my shirt. You ripped my shirt. <laughs> And then he just, he fights the guy, um, kills him, goes over, he, sti- he uses the, then like grab, uses his blade and like picks up a pile of coke. No, he uses this big chunk of glass that's already got like two grams of coke on it and does the whole thing. Yeah. And then he walks over to the kitchen. He looks through, finds his crossbow in this cupboard, um, 
and the then axe he is fi- perfectly mounted like they knew it was they gonna be already there already mounted his axe then he opens a random jar and sticks his finger in it which i guess the jar is also full of lsd i'm guessing it's whatever hallucinogen came from that giant hornet it's some kind of jelly that that thing produces, so, or it's a jar of spoiled condiments. I like to think somebody just left some Hellman's out and it turned gray. Well, he takes a hit of it and like his eyes dilate. He sees the devil, and he like yeah, he goes crazy. His face melts off. Mm-hmm. He sees the devil. Yeah, he, he sees the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so then he goes outside. There's another. The other Dark Riders just standing in front of a burning car. Mm-hmm. He shoots him in the neck with a crossbow, and he just pulls it out of his neck, blood spurting everywhere. They get in a fight with each other. Um, He kills that guy, too. And then he somehow just seemingly knows which direction to go, because he drives off and finds a hangar where there's a guy making LSD. and Played uh, by Richard Brake, who is phenomenal in everything he's in. He was the Night King. He was in Barbarian. He was in uh, 31. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't make those connections, but you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a pet tiger and I will back up to say this when he met with Duke earlier, Duke explains to him that all of this kind of happened because there were these couriers. And for some reason, the guy who manufactured some LSD decided to make a bad batch for the couriers and just broke them and they became savage animals. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Duke also mentions that they're in constant agony, but they fucking love it. So yeah. there's kind of like a Cenobite like dimension to them. Yeah, and and just to be clear, it's not like ever explicitly said, but these are these are the Dark Riders, like mm-hmm. that, and it makes sense. Like they're just totally out of their mind. They're not human, and but they're killable. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so it's funny when you when you get to um the LSD lab. Yeah, he's like no gloves making LSD, so you know it's soaking through his skin. Licking his fingertips. And then he's, like, talking to him. He talks to Red. Red doesn't say a word to him. It's an entirely one-sided conversation where he's just imagining Red's response or Red's, like, communicating. Yeah, it's, like, telepathic. And then he just, like, licks his LSD finger. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Releases this tiger named Lily or Lizzie. Yeah, because Um, he gets the impression from Nick Cage that he should let her go. And then he's like, you want to go north. And then Nick Cage just quads through a tunnel. That was really shot cool, I thought, when he's riding through the tunnel on the four-wheeler. I agree, but it's like, where the tunnel come from? North. <laughs> and so he then finds an A-frame church. He ends up like, he he ends up killing everybody. He like kills Nor, uh, blonde uh, Nopfler, <laughs> who's spit shining the hood of the station wagon and he just chucks his battle axe at him and it just squarely hits him right in the head kills him then he grabs a chainsaw and goes to kill well he uh he kills um brother swan earlier in a real cool way he's like talking about how mandy burned to death and so he like sticks the dagger yeah. part of his blade in his mouth to keep him quiet he says then, the darker the whore the brighter the flame and he just interrupts him and just like pushes the the axe through his head brutally uh leaves sister lucy alive um when he goes to kill uh brunette nonfler mm-hmm. he's like he picks up a chainsaw and just starts like trying to crank it it doesn't crank but before it's even cranked he just walks out there and brunette Nofler pulls out like a six foot long 
logger's yeah. chainsaw, and it's clearly like the boss battle. Mm-hmm. His starts up right away. Uh, they get in a fight with each other. Uh, both people are di- both guys are disarmed. Then Nonfler picks up the shorter chainsaw, and then Red picks up a just a heavy chain, throws it around his neck, and pulls him down on the chainsaw and has his long ways. Out. Yeah. You just see the blood splurting out. Mm-hmm. Um, real good gore in this movie. Now, I love chainsaw kills in a movie, but it does kind of bother me when there's a chainsaw fight, because those things would automatically derail each other. Yeah, probably. You'd probably knock the chain off. Yeah. He goes inside the church, picks up their Bible for a second, throws it aside, goes down in this trap door. Then the old woman says, Jeremiah says I'm the most sensual lover because I'm an empath. And I can predict my lover's movements. That's pretty good. <laughs> and then fade to black. And then her head is thrown <laughs> toward Jeremiah's sands as he's in this like weird worship tunnel. Worship tunnel, yeah. And then he's just, they have a back and forth. Jeremiah Sands is just like, you can't hurt me. You cannot hurt me. And so Red walks up to him and grabs his head. And they have this back and forth where Red's not really talking all that much. And then you get to this weird thing where, well, before Red grabs his head, Jeremiah Sands smarts off about like all these hallucinations that he has that nobody has access to. And Red says, the psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. I'm swimming. Hell yeah. And then he grabs his head and just starts holding him there on his knees. And... Uh, Jeremiah goes from being like, you can't hurt me, you can't hurt me, to I'll blow you, man. Yeah. I'll suck your fucking dick. I'll suck dick. your fucking dick, man. And then he goes, I don't kneel for anybody. You kneel for me. You kneel for me. And then Red just like crushes his head with yeah. his bare hands. The movie's really good. That's how it ends, basically. Yeah. They get in the car after, he gets in the car after the station wagon you have red and blue shifts back and forth. Mm-hmm. Blue shifts are generally a fond memory. Like he sees Mandy the first night they met and they're on the dance floor and there's blue lights everywhere. Um, and then you have a red shift and she's like crying and you see her scar on the other side of her face. Then they're in the car and it cuts back. Blue light, um, red. He's clean. He looks like he did. He's wearing that 44 shirt. Mm-hmm. Red light shift. He's covered in blood from head to toe wearing the biker vest. Then it, pans back to Mandy in red, then it pans back to uh, red in red, and he's got this big-ass smile on his face, crazy psychotic smile, covered in blood, and he just drives off into the distance. Roll credits. I'll say this. Okay. I thought the movie was a little too long. Yeah, I would definitely trim off like the first 15 minutes, honestly. Mostly the Mandy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> if you could just cut Mandy out of it mm-hmm. and have a movie called Red. Yeah. Well, I feel like they did so much more with the Mandy character through those animated sequences, which were beautifully animated, yeah, I thought. It, it, once he starts, once Red starts tripping, you get these animated scenes mm-hmm. where you see Mandy uh, in various positions. Like the first time I <clears throat> the first time you see her, she he she like turns around and looks at him and her face starts rotting and maggots start crawling out of her face. Yeah. Uh, the next time you see her it's like a, a mountain scene that kind of looks down into the water mm-hmm. and then she's just underwater. And the final time you see her animated, she's like standing over this purple beast 
and she reaches down inside of these wounds on it and pulls out a green shining stone that like she holds above her head and it shines brightly on her and drips monster blood on her face. Yeah. Is that supposed to be the horn of Abraxas she pulled out of it? I don't know. I I mean, it's all real trippy. It's hard to kind of interpret. Yeah. So earlier you mentioned how Lovecraftian it is, and I totally agree, but there's also like a sword and sorcery type of low fantasy element to it, I felt. Like it felt a lot like a Conan the Barbarian type story, which the author behind that series was close friends with H.P. Lovecraft. And I, I agree. So you've got the Lovecraftian part of it gets out of the way and it becomes like a Conan Barbarian, Conan the Barbarian yeah. revenge fest. Yeah, it's not your typical like middle or high fantasy where it's, you know, knights and wizards. It's man versus monster. Yeah. And, you know, with a lot of Lovecraftian stuff, you never figure out what the monster is. And that's good. That's usually like the cornerstone of like the cosmic terror. Yeah. But in this one, you've got something where it has the cosmic terror feel. and after, But it's very... The, primitive and at the end of the movie you've got this scene where it's like you're it's panning out away from red Mm -hmm. and you've got an alien almost uh, terrain yeah with these big like claw like almost spires coming out of the ground you've got two massive planets on the horizon that are you know 20 times the size of the moon or closer to the moon whatever so it, it definitely puts you in a space of you don't know if you're if he's on Earth. You don't know where he's at. You don't know if he's tripping. Mm. You, like, you lose a sense of reality. Well, the cult talks about ascension a lot. And I, that's kind of how I took the film is that he ascended instead of the cult because he's truly in touch through his like grief and loss and use of psychedelics. Yeah. You know, you're drowning. I'm swimming. Yeah, maybe. But it's like, what is reality for these purposes? Or yeah. is he just unhinged at this point mm-hmm. so you don't have a clear answer as to whether or not there was anything supernatural about it or mystical yeah or if it's just a bunch of people tripping it's one of those stories that's definitely made to skirt the line between you know uh ni- narcotic psychosis uh mental illness and the supernatural you don't know where any one of those borders ends yeah and and i think that gives it a little more leeway in having a slightly more fantastical Conan the Barbarian kind of feel. Yeah. Um, but also being a very grounded Lovecraftian horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a little bit of both. It's definitely a hybrid. Yeah. Uh, I will say, apart from the length, my biggest complaint about this movie is... Oh, okay, apart from the length and Mandy, my biggest complaint <laughs> about the movie is I got real tired of the red shift the red light, the overly dark scenes. Um, I thought it was a little over the top. Um, Did I you find the, it kind of taxing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought the, and, and maybe that's by design, but I, it does kind of like burn your brain after a while. Well, and the problem with it is it makes it hard to actually see the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many dark scenes that are overwhelmingly dark that you have a lot of black crush. At least I did on the T on my TV. And it's one of those things where I don't really like a movie that wants me to change all of my settings just for this one movie. Yeah. Um, it was hard to see some stuff and the red, the, the red hue on everything became just overdone. Like it's like, if it's in every scene, it's not in any scene. Mm -hmm. 
is the is the way I looked at it. Like I think yeah. the artistry got a little bit in the way. Yeah, I think the magenta light is overdone, like you were saying, because there are some shots early in the movie that are really beautiful before they start doing that. Like the scene where uh we're first introduced to Jeremiah talking to Brother Swan and the light shining in through the window and it almost looks like a faded Polaroid picture the way lighting's done there. It's got a very brown and gold color to it. And I'll say like when Mandy first meets Jeremiah and she's tripping, mm-hmm. the way they use red and blue shifts gives Jeremiah an after image. Yeah. So whenever he moves, you've got a blue outline where his arms used to be so he's still there for a moment. It makes it very, very surreal and very fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like too much of a good thing is not always a good thing. Yeah. And, and I think you see kind of that in the other very similar Nicolas Cage movie, Color Out of Space, where it's overly purple the whole time and it gets visually exhausting. Yeah. It's because it, you're having to. I get it. It's it, the red hue makes it. He's in hell. Yeah. But I got it. Mm-hmm. Um. You can do that. I think there's a way you can do that that's a little more reserved. And it doesn't get in the way. But like you say, it's taxing. Yeah. And when you're watching a two-hour movie where the colors and visual effects are taxing, it feels like it's longer than two hours. Yeah. Like, I think the movie's good. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to watch it ever again because (laughs) it's like, I don't want to go through that. Yeah. It's, well, similar to what we said about bringing out the dead. It's a vibe. It's just not a fun vibe. It's not my vibe. Yeah. Um, I do appreciate, I love a good Lovecraftian horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I love a good revenge film. And I like, I when I started watching it, I thought, man, the way they're using the lights, the way they're using colors, this is very creative. I like it. And then 45 minutes later, I'm like, this has got to fucking stop. <laughs> it didn't. Mm-hmm. There's another hour and 15 minutes after that. But yeah. It's kind of like um, uh, this, uh, the story of Ricky. Ricky O? Yeah, Ricky O. Um, where I'm like, if you could just cut out about 45 minutes of that, that'd be great. It's the same kind of thing. Like, if you cut out about 45 minutes of that red light, it would be really good. You want you want to give it the Donald Trump blood sport treatment. <laughs> so, but yeah, what, what about you? What are your thoughts? Well, I was just about to ask you uh, what performances stood out for you besides the, you know, two leads, uh, Nicolas Cage and... Uh, Linus Roach, who played Jeremiah. Um, the only really, the only standout character for me is uh, the the I forget what his name is, the guy who makes the LSD, the chemist. Yeah, Richard yeah, Brake. Yeah, who we mentioned earlier. I thought he did an excellent job with his role mm-hmm. because he is delivering all of his lines to a wall. Yeah, and you 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 get the feeling that he's actively involved in a conversation. And the way he responds tells you, like, not just like the words he uses, his tone, his inflection, mm-hmm. the the time it takes him to respond. It tells you the answer. So all of his responses are as, as if there's an actual conversation going on. And you hear the words that Red uses without him ever speaking them. Yeah. And I can never make up my mind if that guy's jacked or not. <laughs> oh, I think he's... Uh, he's stringy. Yeah, he's like... Skinny ripped. I think he's like more jacked in other films. Like in 31, I think he's got a little more size on him. It's it's definitely like a you get to look more jacked if you're skinny. Yeah. And he's real skinny. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he handled the... Uh, he made the character eccentric. 
Yeah. Without it being over the top, he just struck me as a guy who manufactures LSD with no gloves on. Yeah. Well, he did kind of like a classic like burnout Tommy Chong type thing, but he still feels kind of menacing or at the very least like otherworldly. I, I don't know. Um, they Tommy, did you wrong, man. Tommy Chong. They really wronged you. Because we're watching that 70s show and then also in that in that 90s show. Yeah. Tommy Chong is in it and it's like, I hate his character. Do you? <laughs> yes. It's so exhausting. I'm like, you're useless. I think he's hilarious. I can't stand it. And so. When he records over clerks with his real world audition. <laughs> um, I think that the chemist, although burnt out, isn't a moron. No. And Tommy Chong is a moron. Yeah. The chemist might be the most spiritually sharp person in the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, I guess. That's his vibe for yeah. sure. Like he's full tilt into the whole psychedelic other world connection kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he does a really good job. I don't think anybody else really has a that great of a standout role. I like blonde Mark Knopfler, the blonde mullet guy that's he just always slack jawed and playing with the uh, power window, which I guess would be new in '83. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's power windows in '77. Oh, new to him. <laughs> Um, well, I think that guy's just a simpleton. Mm. <laughs> I get in the sense of like, they just, they, but they're filling space. Yeah. They're just, everybody else is just somebody who's a member of the cult. Mm-hmm. Who's got a very menial purpose. Yeah. And I think Bill Duke did a great job. The, uh, guy in the camper that sets him up with everything. Yeah. It, it's funny that the character's, uh, name is Carruthers, which I think might be a reference to Scatman Carruthers who played in the shining. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's definitely got like a bit of the shining <laughs> in the sense of like he's he's keyed into what's going on. I don't on. think you're allowed to call black people that, Michael. What? You just called him a shine. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, I think, it's, I think he's, he's got a bit of the shining. Mm, careful, buddy. <laughs> um, the thing about this movie is there's several characters and not many speaking roles. Yeah. I mean, even and, Nicolas Cage himself doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. I mean, the most you hear Nicolas Cage speak really is at the end when he's talking about being a swimmer because mm-hmm. he doesn't respond to the old lady trying to proposition him to save her life. He just cuts her head off. Um, he doesn't. He, the uh, Well, you do when he says, you ripped my shirt. You, you ripped my, my shirt. shirt. Yeah. Like that's a, some of the most dialogue you hear because he never has a conversation with Mandy. He might have less dialogue than the Cheddar Goblin. Uh, yeah, the Cheddar Goblin does all of his in like 15 seconds. Yeah. They're like, Cheddar Goblin, you ain't all the cheddar. And he's like, I love cheddar. Blah! And just throws macaroni up on all these kids. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just more and more scenes of him throwing up on the kids. And they're like, Cheddar Goblin Cheddar. It's got the most cheddar in it. I think the Cheddar Goblin's like your spirit animal. I think he's the funniest character. I think you embody the, sp- the Cheddar he, Goblin. He might be my favorite character. <laughs> favorite performance? Cheddar Goblin. I mean, he deserves the credit. Those kids, child act- trash actors. Cheddar Goblin? He's on point. I know they sell Cheddar Goblin shirts after the movie came out. They sell that and uh, his like tiger print uh, baseball tee. Yeah, it's it's a good movie. Probably not my favorite. Yeah, so I guess since we're at the end of uh, Cage Month, I guess we, we should do a little bit of a retrospective of the four films we've watched. Uh, why don't you give me your ranking of the four? Oof, four films. I'm assuming Face Off is number one for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Face Off is the most fun. 
Bringing Out the Dead's the best one. Okay. Um, I think Lord of War is a close second as far as best, like actual, just like good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Face Off is not that good of a movie. It's just a very fun, entertaining movie. Yeah. But so if I'm ranking them, it's if I were going to watch them again, Face Off, Bringing Out the Dead, Lord of War, and then Mandy. Okay. I would go Bringing Out the Dead, Mandy, Face Off, then Lord of War. And I think my problem with Mandy is not so much it's a bad movie. It's just I got very tired of the uh, cinematography. So instead of the question being, which would you be more prone to rewatch, which ones would you be more prone to recommend? Because in that conversation, I would put Mandy a little higher just because I doubt, you know, as many people have seen it. If anyone hasn't seen Face Off, you've got to watch Face Off. Uh, You hadn't until we did the podcast. I mean, I think I'd seen parts of it before, but I'd never sat down and watched it. Yeah. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially the part where they take the face off. Like like some kind of face off? Yeah. And then they face off with each other. Yeah. Um, if I were going to recommend watching them, Face Off, Bringing Out the Dead, Mandy, Lord of War, I would do... Uh, mm-hmm. very similar to kind of what you did. It's just recommendations. Yeah. I think Mandy's a good watch. It's just not repeatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lord of War doesn't actually offer a whole lot. Yeah. It's not that exciting of a movie. I didn't dislike Lord of War. It's just, yeah. It's just an observation. Mm. It's just a, it's a period piece. Yeah. I so, mean, it so is, is Mandy. It is. <laughs> That's true. Um, you know, Lord of War captures a, a very specific thing during post 9-11 world. Yeah, like, uh, that's what Would it. Would you does. consider that historical fiction? Like with modern history, does that kind of blur the line? I mean, it's not so much historical fiction. It's based on a true story. Character names are essentially changed, but you wouldn't call it a biopic, though. No, I wouldn't. But I wouldn't say it's. I wouldn't say it's fiction. Mm. It exists somewhere in like a. It's almost like a biography. Okay, but not. But like names and places have been changed for the protection of. The- yeah. People involved kind of thing. So I'm going to ask you this question, but I'm going to answer it before I do. Uh, through, we've uh, spanned Nicolas Cage's career like to a good extent. We started pretty early, ended pretty recently. I personally don't think his acting has changed or evolved over the years. I think the audience has changed and evolved over the years to where we appreciate him more. Do you feel the same way? Do you think he's changed substantially in his acting style over the past 30 years or so? Or do you think people are just more appreciative of it now? I don't know if I... I don't think it's substantially changed. I think he's more refined Mm. uh, in the sense of, I mean, he's been doing it for a long time. You're going to develop it a little bit more. I think um, Mandy and I always forget the name of it. The Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah, uh, Willie's Wonderland or yeah, something. Yeah, Willie's Wonderland. So Willie's Wonderland and, and Mandy occupy the same kind of area for me in the in the low yeah. dialogue Cage movies. Where in like Willie's Wonderland, there's no dialogue from Cage. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got quite a bit of dialogue and color out of space, but I would also lump that in there because he's doing like a Donald Trump voice half the time. <laughs> but, you know, the idea there is that it's a very physical acting in those movies. Yeah. He's conveying things through um, the way he's interacting with the world, how he's responding to stimuli, whatever. That's the sign. Like, I think that's a sign of a good actor. Yeah. Because he doesn't need words to tell his story that that's going on. 
Um, not that Willy's Wonderland is a complicated story, mm-hmm. but not just any actor could, I don't think, could do it with no dialogue. Yeah. I think that the problem with Cage and his perception generally, including mine for a, a period of time, uh, but I, I kind of had softened on him uh, prior to doing to watching these movies. But, you know, the National Treasure era of Cage yeah. ruined Nicolas Cage for me. Mm-hmm. Because those movies suck. Yeah. Really bad. And so that's what Cage kind of became. This National Treasure guy and all of these outlandish roles. Um, he became a caricature, rightly or wrongly, of himself yeah. in public perception. Yeah, and those films were also like a big part of like the Dan Brownification of history where everyone collectively just got really fucking stupid for 10 years. It's like, well, maybe this happened. Well, it didn't, though, and you have nothing to prove that. Yeah, but like, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a hidden code on the back of the fucking decoration? Sure. Uh, sure, I guess that would be cool, but it didn't happen, Is man. it 15 movies worth cool? No. Yeah. I, I think, think there's only three. But... partly why... Uh, Disney left such a bad taste in Nicolas Cage's mouth. Both, well, no, they didn't own Marvel when he did the Ghost Rider movies, but no, I think those trilogy of films, like, he really didn't like making them. I don't think that was the IRS era for him, but that's probably what was leading into it. I think Skull uh, Rider was a good movie. Ghost Rider? Ghost Rider, yeah. Sorry, Ghost Rider. Uh, I think it was a decent enough movie when it came out. I don't remember I much I never about watched him. the sequels. Yeah. Um, and I don't think. I don't think that really hurt my opinion of him, mm-hmm. uh, but I think there's a lot of, there's an opinion of Nicolas Cage that exists with people who have never really watched a lot of Nicolas Cage movies, and it's not so much that he's changed, and it's not so much that people have changed, it's that you just, once you start watching his movies for more than National Treasure, Ghost Rider, whatever, you can see how good of an actor is, like Con Air. It's a fantastic movie. Everybody would agree Con Air is a great movie. Yeah. That's 2001, 2002? No, that's like mid-90s. Oh, is it? That's like 95, 96. Okay. But regardless, yeah. um, mid-90s, mm-hmm. that's a very level-headed Nick Cage. Yeah. Overshadowed by the rest of his stuff and the persona that people attributed to him. Yeah, the maniac persona that, you know, he's... I'm kind of worried he might get typecasted in because I think we've learned this month that the subtler side of Nick Cage is just as satisfying as the screaming maniac side. And that's really all people are kind of knowing him for now because it's been memefied over the last 15 years. Right. And I think Mandy's a good example of subdued Cage, crazy Cage, where his animalistic screams in Mandy, Mm -hmm. where he's, you know, chugging vodka and just in existential turmoil it's not just crazy yelling no he's conveying a lot about his character Mm -hmm. there's a duality to Nicolas cage that can exist in any movie and he does a good job delivering it it's when you think you just want crazy cage that you lose the nuance of his acting chops yeah um he's got a stage presence but if you just crank it it's too much of a good thing and it's it takes away from the overall experience. Yeah, unless the movie's like specifically built around that, you kind of have to dial it in specific for Nicolas Cage roles. Like Face Off. Yeah, is, you can be as nutty as you want in a movie like that. 
Right. And, but he's still like, there's some restraint on it. Like he's yeah. still got a character with motivations. He's got a, a goal. He's a dude disguised as another dude playing another dude. And he does a great job delivering it. It's not over the top. Mm-hmm. But when you just like some of the more, I don't know, we didn't watch any of the like IRS era movies. No, I wouldn't want to. Where, you know, like you say, he's on record saying he didn't phone it in. Yeah. But some of that over the top acting that kind of became notorious for mm-hmm. that. Do you remember that one thing I sent you on Instagram where he was quoted as saying, he's like, I don't need to be in the MCU. I'm Nick fucking Cage. Yeah. That persona, like that, there's kind of that crazy artistry there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he's underrated. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because of the memification of Cage. I don't know that I'd say underrated, but I would definitely say misunderstood or misused. I'd rest firmly on underrated because I think people discredit Cage as an actor. Okay, yeah. Based upon their perception of this is what Nicolas Cage is. Nicolas Cage is this screaming maniac. Mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage can be a screaming maniac. Nicolas Cage can also be incredibly subdued yeah. and convey and act an entire movie with very little dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to anyone that's like stuck on the character type or the pigeonhole that Nicolas Cage seems to be stuck in, I would highly recommend Bringing Out the Dead. I think of the movies we did this month, that's the one that shows the most depth of him as an actor. Agreed. I think that shows, I, I think Bringing Out the Dead, followed by Mandy, most depth as an actor. Mm-hmm. I think Lord of War is the most serious Cage, but very little actual yeah. acting involved. He's almost just a narrator walking through the movie Lord of War. Yeah. I'm um, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. And then I was going to, you know, I would say that Bringing Out the Dead has a little bit more of that crazy psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not the most serious, but I think it does have the most depth. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Con Air earlier, but I wanted to ask, uh, what are some Nick Cage movies we didn't include this month that are some of your favorites? Oh, gosh, I don't know without looking. I, I definitely put Con Air yeah. at the top. Some ones that I... W- you know, I wish there's more than four weeks in a month that I would have done would be a, a more recent one that I loved was Pig. I know a lot of people shit on that one for being pretentious, but I really dug it. And I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. Pig's amazing. And of course, uh, Raising Arizona, I think would have been another good one. Or Leaving Las Vegas, another fantastic Cage performance. You know, I remember The Family Man. Okay. It's been a long time since I've watched it, but I think he's got a very subdued character there. Is that the one where he's the weatherman that walks around with a bow and arrow? No, the family man is, if I remember correctly, is the, yeah. So the synopsis is um, he stumbles into a grocery store holdup and disarms the gunman. Um, Next day he wakes up and he's in a totally different life. Nobody remembers him. And so like he can see his family, but he can't, like they're having Christmas, but he's been replaced and he's like lost in that world. Okay. So, um, that's a, and that's a very loose summary from a long, I haven't seen in a long time, but, um, that's a good one where I recall he's not a crazy character. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a pretty solid movie with him. You know, we talked color out of space. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, mom and dad. Um, I think you mentioned that one to me. I hadn't seen it. I think that's, I think those are probably the top ones. Yeah. So. 
Well, we're coming up on an hour 40. Uh, any more thoughts on Mandy or Nicolas Cage month at all? No, I'm really glad we did Nicolas Cage month. It's um, been good to kind of explore a lot of his work. Uh, or not a lot of it, but uh, some representative samples of his work mm-hmm. and see more of Cage than just the the caricature of Cage. I like that we explored a little bit more of that. I'm glad we did, too. I think this has been very fruitful. So uh, for the upcoming month, we're going to be doing Westerns and the films. We're again going to try to do them chronologically as they came out, starting with Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles from 1976, followed by... Unforgiven from 1991, followed by Tombstone from 1993, and finishing out with Champion of the Podcast, S. Craig Zeller's Bone Tomahawk from 2016. And just so you know, Matt's been wanting to do Bone Tomahawk for a while now, so... I have. Hopefully this is going to live up to all the hype. After Bone Tomahawk, I kind of want to do a mini episode just about the films of S. Craig Zeller, talking about those three. Well, if Bone Tomahawk can outdo Tombstone... We'll talk about it. It's very similar. Both Kurt Russell. We'll see. Tombstone's up top for me. Yeah. All right. Well, I've been your host, Matt. And I've been your host, Michael. And we'll catch you next episode. Try to figure out what all this is for. Try to figure out what all this is for.